You know, there's like photos and those memes that everyone hates. It's like, oh, one like equals one dollar to this African kid. It's like, this is actually that. Like now that it actually exists. Like, yeah, one upvote could equal one dollar for, for water.org because which when you're upvoting, what you're actually doing is you're saying, I want this little bit much extra of the mining rewards to go to this organization because I chose to upload this organization as opposed to upvoting this other organization. My guest today is Eric Pinos. Eric is America's ecosystem lead at Ontology, the president of the Blockchain Education Network, and a graduate of MIT, where he was the president of the MIT Bitcoin Club, as well as a researcher at the MIT Digital Currency Initiative. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Very timely as well with the Bitcoin happening coming up. So we'll dive into that. But I really want to start off back in your previous role with the VC firm Game Theory Group. It seems like that's when you first became familiar with ontology. And so what specifically at the time were you looking for when you were conducting due diligence for blockchain projects and investments for the group? And what specifically stood out for you about the ontology network? That group was my first job out of college. And so I was involved doing technical due diligence on some token investments that we were making. And it was very focused on Asian projects, which was interesting for me because the Asian ecosystem was something I've always wanted to get into because I'm Latin American and I grew up in the US. So you know, I've been to San Francisco many times. I've been to Latin America many times. Um, Asia is very different and it's very like different kind of culture. So I really wanted to expose myself to that. And because the, the group was doing a lot of investments there, I naturally got to meet with a lot of startup founders who were based in Asia. You know, and one of the projects was ontology. So got to know a lot of different projects that way. And then afterwards, as I kind of decided that I wanted to, I wanted to kind of switch gears and start working more on product, right? I really wanted to get down and build a platform and help build out a platform and get that out into the hands of people. Um, so ontology really stood out to me because I think that a lot of what blockchain wants to do is affect the real world. And for a lot of blockchain use cases that affect the real world, like say blockchain for medical records, blockchain for supply chain, blockchain for copyright, patents, and real estate, um, you need some form of identity system, right? Some form of provenance. And so that's something that Ontology offers through its OntID solution. So I was really drawn to that from a tool perspective, like, wow, this is a very unique tool that they're offering. And I want to help put this in the hands of developers and work with companies that want to use it so that we can finally start seeing some of these blockchain use cases that we've been promising ourselves, you know, for a long time. Right. And so when you say identity, is this, is this the identity of a person or identity of like an asset or, or a corporation? It, these are decentralized identifiers, right? So it's a DID addresses, which you can point them to people. You can point them to objects like internet of things objects. So you can give your car like a, a crypto address, right? It's like very interesting use cases. You can put them towards companies and enterprises. So all the stuff with DAOs, you can put them towards supply chain to track items and track goods. So I think the most common thought is uh, for people. And it makes a lot of sense because you could do for you know certifications, you could do reusable KYC, you could have people give people ownership of their own data. Finally, you own your own data. It's all stored locally. Like You have access to it. You're the only one that could see it. And then you could choose to, to monetize it by selling it if you want. Right, so like giving people the ability to make that choice. Um, but there's also a lot of other applications for it in giving identity to objects, giving identity to enterprises and so on. So for you, it's really a question of how do we bridge the gap between the old world, old legacy systems, 
and this new blockchain ecosystem that's currently emerging. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that um, there's a lot of really cool native blockchain ideas, like non-fungible tokens and a lot of the DeFi projects. It's some of the coolest stuff. It's just like completely digital, completely on-chain, completely native projects. That's going to be revolutionary on its own. Mm. I think like a lot of what we want to do is, you know, how can we take things that already exist and, and digitize them and tokenize them, um, which presents its own challenges. It's like the last mile problem is how do you actually take something like a house and how do you tokenize ownership of a house? Or how do you actually take something like renewable energy and tokenize renewable energy? How do you tokenize supply chain and you track goods? How do you actually keep track of them on a blockchain? Uh, there's there's different approaches to that, but no matter what, you need to have some kind of identity system that is able to attach those real world objects to the blockchain. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm really, I mean, just within this past year, starting to understand the importance of not just what the project wants to accomplish, but also the actual technical implementation of that. Because what I see happening with it, with the whole virus and what is happening to central banks and repo markets and just debt piling on and on by these governments, it's a question of what does the world look like when the whole concept of counterparty risk has completely collapsed. I didn't necessarily understand these stable coins that were coming out during the last cycle that were all focused on decentralized stable coin like MakerDAO as opposed to Tether, which is backed up by a physical dollar in a bank account supposedly. So I guess my first question would be like with the concept of a collapse and counterparty risk, how much of the old world is transferred over versus just like starting from scratch in a decentralized finance world? And like an example would be like, do old world credit scores actually transition to the blockchain world? Or are we just going to start from scratch on like a new decentralized finance platform? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think that one of the issues is that a lot of the current companies that exist today, um, their business models rely on having data in silos and keeping the data or keeping ownership of the data. So, you know, the credit score companies right now, they make a lot of money by calculating your credit score and selling it back to you. Because it's my financial data, but I have to pay Experian money to see my own credit score. Right? This is the number that they put together from my bank accounts, which they buy the data from my banks. They buy the data from like my whatever, like credit, my loans, all that stuff. They compile the credit score that they decided is important for me to know, and then they sell it to me. So like that, that's the business model that currently exists. And to get them to switch to using a blockchain-based system would be convincing them to let go of that business model because now the person is going to be in ownership of that credit score and they're going to have it. It's going to be calculated on chain. Right? So they'll already know it. And then companies would have to pay them. The banks would have to pay them to see their credit score. So it's a very stark shift. And that's the most extreme, right? Because there's also compromises. There's, okay, well, you could have, you could have token models where uh, you have dual ownership over it, right? And so you could both see it. So I think that would be helpful for stuff like hospitals because I think hospitals are also very protective of their data. So if you have like medical records on a blockchain, it's going to be very difficult to convince hospitals to be willing to take an x-ray for someone and then give it to that person and that person owns the x-ray. You know, the, the hospital makes a lot of money off of owning the x-ray. So there's probably going to have to be some kind of dual ownership model. So 
I do think it's going to be a lot of compromises in terms of how this is going to be deployed because the companies that exist today are very, very protective of their data. They're very, very protective of their transaction data. They're very protective of their assets. So you have kind of all of the incumbents that are going to be integrating blockchain and trying and experimenting towards that direction. But also at the same time, you're going to have completely new companies and new startups just pop out and just start, you know, start fresh, like you mentioned, with the completely new business models, right? It's like Uber coming in and all of the gig economy companies coming in and just taking the world by storm because none of the incumbents would approach on that territory. You know, now we'll see a similar thing where, yeah, the incumbents will try to integrate the technology and it'll work to an extent. But for the most part, blockchain requires very different kinds of business models and it's really hard for incumbents to change their business models. So I think a lot of the innovation is going to come from brand new companies that are starting from scratch can hop right into those new models. I think it's really a question of like, are there or what paradigm shifting events are going to take place during this decade that are going to change perceptions in a certain direction? Like the coronavirus, I mean, none of us predicted this, but there's so many paradigms that have shifted as a result of this. Some of them very much in favor of decentralization, in favor of blockchain currencies. And I'm seeing so many articles about central bank issued digital currencies now. I certainly believe that we are at the verge of the next bull run, especially with the upcoming Bitcoin happening. So I would be curious, like from your experience in the ontology ecosystem, from your experience at Game Theory Group, can we talk about or can you give us maybe like a a simple framework that people can use to assess a blockchain project? For me, I spend a lot of time just browsing through CoinMarketCap, looking at trading volumes, looking at teams, projects. So I'd be curious to hear from you, like maybe a quick framework people can use to assess a project. Yeah, for sure. I think that trading volume is a little tricky because there's there's a lot of wash trading that happens. So you know, like a lot of fake volumes that people just do to pump up the numbers. Mm. I mean, CoinMarketCap does a pretty good job of trying to separate it out. And so they have like a section for reported volumes and they have another section for adjusted volumes. So they, they do their best with their algorithms to try to like get to what the real number is. So, you know, always be sure to be checking both of those numbers to kind of see like what the accurate numbers for the project are. I also think that I mean, I would look a lot right into the white paper and right into the tech and like what they're talking about, which isn't always very easy to do for people because a lot of it is tech and not everyone's a technical person. You know, I I actually realized that a lot of times when reading these white papers, I wouldn't understand what they were saying. And I would think that it was like some shortcoming in my understanding, like, oh, I don't understand what this is. This tech must be way above me. But once I really like started figuring it out, I realized that like, more than half of the projects have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> in the white paper, they just put like all this like tech mumbo jumbo that really doesn't make sense. It's like you don't need to be using these complicated words to to describe this thing. It, it's like calling a, a janitor or a sanitation engineer. Mm. It's like sure, that's that's accurate, that's correct, but you're putting so many of these of these words in here. It's very clear what you're trying to do is you're trying to to like when you go and do an ICO and you try to do like your raise or whatever is you're trying to complicate things and make it seem like you have a lot more of a technical thing than you really have. So, you know, for someone who's like reading a white paper and doesn't fully understand it, don't feel bad that you don't grasp it because it might not be that the tech is just so beyond your understanding. It could be that maybe they don't know what they're talking about because they should be articulating it in a way that is understandable to the 
to the people who would be the users, right? Like, especially it's, if it's only understandable to like someone who has a PhD in cryptography, then, you know, that's, that's what the yellow papers are for, right? Because the yellow papers are like really, really deep into the tech of it. But you have, you know, in their, in their blog or in their updates that they give out, you know, they should be making an effort to, to talk to their users and to explain it transparently to what, to their users. You know, looking at the team is really good because of like seeing social proofs. Who are these people? Are these legitimate people? Do they have backgrounds? Have they worked at previous startups? Are they known? I think there's some projects now that are trying to be a little more pseudonymous, which is interesting. I'm kind of following in like the Satoshi footsteps of no one really knows who they are. So I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't like discredit a project that way. Like I kind of get a little concerned when it's like, you know, who are these there's some projects that like you don't know who they are and they won't reveal who they are. So it, it kind of is like a red flag, but at the same time, you can kind of understand like why they would want to be pseudonymous, especially ones that are working on like more privacy oriented projects, right? Or maybe they're like they're trying to specifically do things that would uh, enable like censorship resistant blockchain based media in like places where they really need it, right? So it's like so it's interesting because that, that's something that I definitely used to look at like you know, who the team is and how public is the team, how transparent and open is the team. But now it's, it's not as important for me, but I still think it's important to, to see that transparency because if they're not being transparent about what they're doing, then that's like a huge, huge red flag, I think. Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it well enough. And I think that reigns true here for sure. I, I do think technology and the technical implementation of something is important, but I don't know that the best technology will will win at the end of the day. Like I think it's going to require good tech combined with tackling the right market opportunity in the right way. Right. It's weird. Good technology is almost a subjective thing because what a lot of these white papers and projects are presenting is overcomplicated technology, right? So it's like mm. like Ruby Goldberg machines of blockchain. It's like, wow, yeah, this is very complicated. You got dual layer, you got dual layer cross sharding going on. Okay, cool. But uh, you know, it's you could simplify, you know, make it simpler. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be that complex. And and I also see a lot of people just parroting it without really fully understanding. You know, I think every, every step of the way, like on podcasts, in lessons and videos and blogs and weekly updates, you know, we're the ones that are inside the space and we should be making an effort to try to like take these, these concepts, these difficult concepts is like every, almost everything in blockchain is like a new concept, except for, I guess, like cryptography because cryptography has been around. So, you know, it's up to us to really convey these new concepts and articulate them in ways that people would understand. Really quick, can you explain what sharding is? I, I first, I came across the concept when I found Icon and, and what they were doing, but can, can you very quickly explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. The idea of sharding. So right now when you store data on a blockchain or when you store logic on a blockchain, right, like smart contracts or tokens or transactions, you, you broadcast out a transaction and it gets mined, and then it gets propagated across the entire network. Right? So blockchain is a state machine. It's like, if I send you a Bitcoin or I send you an Ethereum, you know, whatever chain it is, every node in the network has to update their blockchain to say, okay, Eric sent this person a transaction. And then that has to, every node has to get that, get be clear on that transaction, has to settle, and then you can move on to the next transaction. 
Right? So that's what makes blockchain really secure is because everyone has a copy of it. It also makes blockchain really slow because you have to wait for everyone to to write it down to before you can move on to the next transaction. And it's a groups of transactions together. So it's like a, those are the blocks. Um, so with the idea of sharding, sharding is one way of potentially scaling and making it faster by taking like what what a block would be and sharding it into like different sections of the network. So by breaking it apart into the different sections, you don't have to keep track of everyone's transactions. You just have to regroup every once in a while. Right. Some people are hesitant to deploy these kinds of solutions because they think it it weakens the fundamental value out of blockchain, which is supposed to be like this rock solid, like permanent, everyone agrees every step of the way. Right. So like there's always, you know, now we're kind of pulling back a little bit and taking these little compromises. You know, how many compromises is too much? What's the right amount? And there's also different ways of doing it, right? Sharding is just one idea. And I think it's one that's gained a lot of traction. When I first heard the word sharding, it was actually on a podcast. And you know when you're listening to something passively and then you hear like like an F word or like a curse word and like it, it's like, what did I just hear? Yeah, yeah. When I first heard sharding on a podcast, I thought, I was like, did he just say sharting like with a T? I was like, and then it's like, oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I see what you're saying about the need for making compromises and where does that line get drawn? Now, I, I do want to hear about your recent partnership that I read with Venezuela blockchain specifically. And so in, in a country like Venezuela, that's probably along the lines of like this pseudo-anonymous, creating a necessity for pseudo-anonymity. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing there and, and how, how that could maybe copy and paste to some other countries in the world that, that, that might be in a similar situation? Yeah, so a lot of the, the work that we're doing, um, Venezuela is definitely an area of high interest where a lot of the population has been buying up Bitcoin uh, recently as an inflationary hedge to the currency, you know, to the local currency. I think that crypto as an inflationary hedge alone itself will be like, that's, that's the killer app for crypto is inflationary hedges against governments that are not doing very well. Like there's already all these reports and these studies and these re- this research about how Argentina is the next Venezuela. Right? And you can see like everything that's happening there. That's why there's also a lot of crypto activity happening there. Um, so it's definitely interesting because, you know, that creates opportunities or it creates needs for education. It creates needs for support because with crypto comes a lot of scams. And even if there's no scams, you know, it is difficult to set up wallets and to keep your private keys safe and to know how to safely store your Bitcoin. So there's a lot of education that can be done there. So, I mean, what we're doing with Venezuela blockchain, you know, we have our Onto wallet, which has our chain, it has the ontology token and the ontology blockchain. The Onto wallet also supports Ethereum and Bitcoin. So it's a full service, it's a full solution for Venezuelans and Latin Americans too, because Venezuela blockchain has a lot of non-Venezuelan Latin Americans that are part of their community for them to be able to use their crypto and to hold their crypto. And we're translating the wallet into Spanish as well. So it becomes even easier for them to use their crypto. As a use case, one thing that we're exploring with them is this idea of uh, online work and remote work. So a large percentage of Latin Americans supplement their income with work online. And if you look at projects like Amazon Mechanical Turks or Microworkers, which Microworkers is one of our partners, they provide like these micro tasks for people to do. Like uh, they show you a picture of a fire hydrant and it says, 
is this a picture of a fire hydrant? Yes or no? And you click on yes or no. And you do it like a thousand times. And what you're doing is you're training a huge set of images. You're training a data set on which images are fire hydrants, which ones aren't. And that gets fed into a machine learning algorithm that then becomes an AI and is able to then discern fire hydrants from non-fire hydrants. So that, that micro work is like you pay someone like very, very small amounts of money to do it, like per click. You pay them per click. And for someone in the US, you know, that's not a lot of money. It's not going to end up being a lot of money for them. It's not really worth their time. But for someone in a developing country where some of these people make like a, like a couple of dollars a day at max, like having the ability to work online is such a game changer for them because that gives them access to the global economy. So what we're all about, what we're really trying to do in Latin America, and that's why we're bringing on all these community partners, is can we provide more online work opportunities for Latin Americans and Venezuelans, and can we pay them in crypto? Because right now, a lot of these projects that do online work, they pay by check or by direct deposit, both of which you require to have a bank account. So if you pay in crypto, then they don't even need to have a bank account, right? You just need the... Bitcoin address or the crypto address, the ONT address, you send them the crypto and you could also micro pay. You could pay per click. Right now, like for online work services, you have to usually you have to accrue like $20 balance before you can get that check or get that direct deposit because the transaction fees are so high. But in crypto, you could be paying like literally per click. You'd be sending like little dust. You could be sending Satoshis like every time someone does a task. So definitely there's a lot of value add in terms of crypto uh, for online work and remote work, but also just online work and remote work is just such a big thing now. It's such an important thing and it's definitely going to become more important. So we definitely want to help enable that, especially for countries where it's going to be even more impactful. Yeah, I love that. And I would love to stay in touch on, on how that progress goes because people in developing countries are are tired, man. They're, they're tired of having their money hyperinflated away all the time. For decades, it's sad. And as a world, you know, we need to create hundreds of millions of jobs in these countries over the next couple of decades if we're going to, you know, truly absorb all the youth that is coming up into the workforce. And right now, what the World Bank is doing is just not working. And so we need, yeah, new ideas like this that are able to, you know, create what the future of work looks like, create meaningful digital work for people, and then pay them in a currency that isn't just going to hyperinflate away in, in six months. And so I think what you're doing here is, is really great. And any plans for ontology to expand over into Africa? We are working with some projects that have presence in Africa. There's some upcoming partnerships that we can announce soon, but I'm, we're always looking for more. Like I know through the Blockchain Education Network, which is a network of university blockchain clubs, um, I've been in touch with some organizations in Africa, like Decentralized Africa. And one of our leaders, one of our Ben leaders who she works with us at Ben Global, but she's also one of the leaders of Ben Canada. Um, she previously ran an organization in Nigeria that would uh, rehabilitate former child soldiers by teaching them woodworking and then eventually teaching them about blockchain. So I'm Latin American, so you know I, I understand Latin America best. We have communities all over the world. We have communities that speak like every different kind of language, but you know, my focus is in Latin America. I would like to see more of a focus in other developing countries as well. And that's going to require a lot of partners, a lot of team members. It's going to require a lot more expansion. I love that she got super practical. 
like starting with woodworking and then transitioning into blockchain. Like that's the type of approach we need in these markets. It, it needs to become much more practical than just a narrative of startups. Right. Startups are, are certainly important, but you know, when you have a country with five ventilators and a hundred competent doctors for millions of people, it really brings a surface. It's like, this needs to be one piece of a much larger conversation that takes place. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the blockchain education network was, uh, we, we started back in uh, 2014 and yeah, a lot of blockchain startups came out of the network, but I think what we really realize is that for most people, even people within the blockchain space, it's not about starting companies, it's about job security. Mm. And so it's about career development. So training them to, to learn something, to learn a valuable skill. And you know what? Even if they, gra- if they graduate and they don't, they don't go into a blockchain position, but they still go into a computer science position, that's still a job well done. So we focus a lot. as like we're, we're really teaching computer science with the flavor of blockchain so even if they don't, they decide blockchain is not for them, they're still equipped with computer science and they can still go and get coding jobs, get programming jobs. Because I think a lot of people think that, oh, it's about startups. It's like, what companies can get started? What companies, for most people, it's not about the companies. And then not everyone's an entrepreneur. For most people, it's just about making sure they can get a good job. So that's, you know, we try to focus a lot on that. That's why Ontology is really, we're really interested in the online work and remote work because that's another angle of giving that job security and giving access to jobs by letting them find them online. Awesome, man. Well, this has been great. I want to finish off with, give us all of your hot takes on what's coming up over the next couple of months with with market prices, with Bitcoin happening. What do you think is about the play out in the market? The only thing I know for sure is that it's going to be volatile. It's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go left, right, and in circles. Even if it goes down, it's, it's such an interesting economic model that once Bitcoin drops in value, there's a huge majority of people that are going to buy. Like if Bitcoin were to drop to 3000, everyone would buy so much of it that it would just be a self-fulfilling prophecy to bring it back up. So it's like very like price elastic. And, you know, the, the way that the miners work is that if, if the value of Bitcoin goes down, you know, it kills off a lot of miners, which reduces competition. Which then makes the miners that are left more profitable, which increases the price, which makes more miners come in to mine more, to bring more attention to the network. So it's just very interesting how like it doesn't seem like Bitcoin is a thing that could fail. So, you know, I'm comfortable having all of my money in it and not really worrying about the the price fluctuations and such. So, you know, but I, I'm not a trader though myself because I feel like, you know, I try to trade it. You know, if I try to sell it and then it's going to go up and, you know, people thought that it was going to, oh, it was going to crash even more because of the coronavirus. But like, look, now we're like back up to, we're almost back to where we were right before our crash happened while all the stocks are still like in the gutter. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a trader, so I can't get really give insight around that. But I think like as a market and as an industry, it's, it's, it's a technological innovation. And so far, like every technological innovation that we've had, has taken the world by storm with like the internet, radio, with electricity, with cell phones. So you have a technology like this. And but the difference about this kind of technology is that people have the opportunity to get in on the ground floor because it's tokens and it's tokens that are accessible and they're commodities that people can buy. So yeah, so I think there's opportunities there. Can you give us a cryptocurrency project that isn't mainstream, we might not have heard of, but it's something that's definitely on your radar 
And, and you can't say ontology or neo. Uh, I really like Hive. So if you're not familiar with Hive, Hive is a fork of the project called Steam. And so Steam was a project that started in 2016 as decentralized social media. Started in Blacksburg, Virginia, uh, in, in near Virginia Tech, which, which is where I went to school. So oh yeah, shout out the Hokies. Oh, nice. Wow. Okay, very cool. I'm following more Hive now, which is a fork of Steam. And same concept. So Hive is you upvote posts and you get paid out in tokens for the posts based off of the number of upvotes you get. So you're incentivized to become popular to the network and post on the network and contribute to the network. And it's decentralized social media as well. So it's all censorship resistant. So I think it's very interesting from a, from a free speech perspective, being able to post anything and being able to not worry about YouTube banning you every day or like having Twitter ban you for like whatever policy they decided to implement that day. And then also on the incentive side, it's very, very interesting to have upvotes correlated to tokens. Whereas like right now you get like a lot of upvotes, you know, you're a content creator, you get all these upvotes. So what does that get you? Like you don't really get anything out of it unless you start putting ads or something, right? It's like ads is like a very web 2.0 business model. It's like what's a web 3.0 business model? A web 3.0 business model is with the likes or monetization itself. And it's not about tipping because tipping is still web, t- web tipping is I'm going to send you a token, right? That's, that's like Patreon, right? There's nothing new there. What's new is this idea that you give the mining rewards that are minted every week and you distribute them out to the users proportional to the amount of upvotes that they've gotten on their content. That's a very new idea. And I think it's a very interesting idea. Definitely a good business model. I've seen people that have used that business model, they're content creators that have made a lot of money on Steam and on Hive doing that. I've seen people fundraise for nonprofits that way by saying, hey, you know, here's my nonprofit. I'm looking to raise this much. You don't have to tip. You don't have to send me money. All you have to do is upvote this post. You know, there's like photos and those memes that everyone hates. It's like, oh, one like equals $1 to this African kid. And it's like, this is actually that. Like now that it actually exists. Like, yeah, one upvote could equal $1 for, for water.org because what you're, when you're upvoting, what you're actually doing is you're saying, I want this little bit much extra of the mining rewards to go to this organization because I chose to upvote this organization as opposed to upvoting this other organization. As I wa- I'm posting on it. I'm getting my companies to post on it. I'm getting my nonprofits to post on it because I think it's an interesting revenue business model. And I just really like it. And it's social media. So I, and I really like writing. I like creating content. I like making videos as well. So you know, I like posting my stuff on there. It's something that I just like doing. So definitely has a lot of my interest. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And I think I, I do believe YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, they need to be very careful, especially because, I mean, th- that network effect can only last so long before people start looking for other platforms. And I think this new decentralized world is going to open up a lot of options. And it's so weird because they're, they're demonetizing a lot of platforms too. Like a lot of, you know, just outside the crypto space, just going looking into the YouTube space. So many YouTube content creators are getting really fed up with YouTube Mm-hmm. Because of all of the restrictions that they're being placed, it's like a lot of them rely on YouTube to make money. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's this holier-than-thou attitude where they've gotten nice and comfy in their ivory tower, and it's like, well, history shows that that's not sustainable. So awesome, man. Well, Eric Minos, America's lead at Ontology, president of the Blockchain Education Network. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to go deeper into finding opportunities and doing business all around the world, join our online community of globally-minded entrepreneurs and investors at globalstartup.tv.